And he said to his mother, the 1100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is, in my ears, here is the silver with me. I took it. And his mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he had returned the 1100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Thus, he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith and he made it into a carved image and a moulded image, and they were in the house of Micah. The man Micah had a shrine, and made an ephod, and household idols, and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, He was a Levite and was sojourning there. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? So he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am on my way to find a place to sojourn. Micah said to him, Dwell with me, and be a father and a priest to me and I will give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. Then the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since I have a Levite as a priest. Oh, sorry. Well, last Sunday, David Morris um, looked at the latter part of Samson's life in uh, Judges uh, 15, 16. And in, in many ways, Sa- um, Samson is the end of the judge's story at least in terms of the events, chronologically. And Samson is the last of the judges, if you do, that's if you don't count um, Samuel, who comes later on at the book, a beginning of 1 Samuel. So this is, that was the end of the judges' story, and yet there are five more chapters in the book of Judges. And uh, these five chapters, they sort of form an appendix at the end of that, book, book of Judges, which we've been going through. And these chapters home in on two particular events, and and they give an insight into the depths of depravity and sin that God's people Israel sank to during the period of the Judges. So all the other chapters, they're leading up to this, They, they show God rescuing, rescuing his people. Stepping in time and time again. In this section, and in the five chapters that we uh, will be sort of finishing off, I'm going to cover those two tonight and then turn in next uh, week, the last three. They give insights 
two examples of the depths of the that the people of Israel sank to. They show us really what Israel was like. That's what that's what they show. Tim Keller, in his commentary on Judges, says of these chapters, this view of humanity without God is so bleak that these passages are almost never preached upon or even studied. So we're going to book the trend tonight and uh, we're going to look at them and then Tony is going to look at the last three chapters which are really, really bad, just to whet your appetites. So here we are. Chapters 17 and 18. They all revolve around this man Micah, not the Micah of the, the, I'm going to say little prophets, I don't mean little prophets, the minor prophets, not that Micah. Verse 1 says, chapter 17, he was a man from the mountains of Ephraim. And uh, Micah, actually, the the name Micah means who is like the Lord. But uh, Micah is anything but like the Lord which is quite ironic, really. And in fact, a lot that happened is nothing like the Lord um, in this and the next chapter. We don't know how old he was, but we're told that Micah had stolen from his mother 1,100 shekels of silver. And that becomes clear in verse 2. I I looked at what a shekel was, and a shekel is a unit of weight. And it depends who you read, but one... Uh, estimation was that one shekel was equal to 10 grams. So 1,100 shekels of silver is 11 kilograms. It's quite a weight. In fact, I I hadn't noticed this, but uh, verse 10 says, Micah said to him, this uh, Bethlehemite, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you 10 shekels of silver per year. Right, so ten shekels was like a wage for a year. This woman had eleven hundred shekels. She must have been a wealthy woman <coughs> to have that much silver. And so Micah stole from his mother this amount. When Micah heard his mother calling down a curse on the thief, he owned up to it pretty quick, and he returned the money. So let me just read again verses 2 to 5. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, well, here's the silver with me. I took it. And his mother, far from scolding him, said, May you be blessed by the Lord my son for returning it, basically. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels, Shekels of silver to his mother. His mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord. There's one God to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. And then he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith. And he made it into a carved image and a molded image. And they were in the house of Micah. The man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod, that's a breastplate that was sort of a, um, that was an idol in itself, and household, uh, household idols. And he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. So, here's this household. They've, his, his, his mother dedicated this, uh, all this, this money 
to God, or some of it at least, and uh, she ended up giving some to the silversmith, and the silversmith made made these idols. The idols were put into the, the collection in the home, and then Micah appointed his son to be the family priest, sort of do-it-yourself religion. He sort of, oh, we'll have a priest and my son's good for this. No, he wasn't a Levite, by the way. He was just his son. And uh, his son became the family priest. So of, and, and with these idols in the home, so Micah passed his idolatry down to his son, his generation, just as his mother had passed it down to him. And then a young Levite turned up who was traveling through the area, and, and Micah persuaded him, because he was a Levite, to become a priest to his family. Obviously, he was wealthy enough to be able to pay him that, to pay him money. And then verse 13 says, Then Micah said, Right, now I've appointed a Levite. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since I have a Levite as a priest. Well done, Micah. You know, well done. Forget all the idols. Forget the ephod. You know, forget the shrine in your house. Um, forget everything about your idolatry. At least you've appointed a Levite, so you'll be all right. God is going to bless you. No, he won't. It was like, it was like superstitious religion. As long as I've done something just to ease my conscience, God will bless. So it was homemade religion. That's the title, the, the dangers of homemade religion. And it was at its worst. And, and, and verse 6 Sort of, there's a really cryptic word from, from the writer of the Judges, and this is what he said in verse uh, 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in the next chapter, 18, it's no better. The tribe of Dan, they migrate. They're trying to find somewhere to, to settle. They come across Micah and his Levite priest, and they think, oh, a Levite priest. We need a Levite priest if God's going to bless us. So they offer the Levite priest, this young man, a better offer. They offer him some money. Come to be our priest. And so the Levite priest thinks, oh, that's a better deal. So he leaves Micah's home. He takes all the gods with him, all the idols. And he goes and serves the Danites, this tribe of Danite, because they paid more money. And he became the priest to the tribe of Dan. What, what struck me as I was thinking about this, reading about it, reading around the subject, was idolatry was the scourge of Israel. It was the great sin of Israel. As soon as they began to settle in Canaan, they began to absorb around them the gods of the people. That's, that's what God said would happen. If you leave anybody in that land, God said, and you allow them to become sort of one with you, you will, draw, they will, you will absorb what they've got. In other words, their idolatry. Just turn with me to Judges 2, verse 11. Judges 2, verse 11 to 13. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, or Baals, Baals we'll call them. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods 
from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And there's a footnote there in my Bible which means goddess, which says goddesses. So this, and that happened within a generation. The generation around Joshua who had battled and fought and they died. And then the new generation, it says they forsook the Lord and instead they turned to worship other lords. The word Baal is a Canaanite word. It means Lord. And so idols are, if you like, mini lords, like mini gods. So the mini gods took the place of the Lord, the one Lord. And they didn't just begin to worship one mini god. Verse 12 says that they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all, were all around them. People, we, we, man, men and women, have a capacity to serve many gods. And that's certainly the pagan worldview, if you like, at the time of the judges. There were many gods. So, so for example, there, there would be the god of agriculture. There would be the god of commerce and the god of business. There was the god of love. There would be a god of music. Um, the God of the harvest, God of war, and so on. So whatever your need, whatever your situation, you could get a God that would just be your God for that situation. So everybody had their own gods depending on their situation. And each God had, had an, a particular influence over their lives. But, and this is the, issue, this is the key, not one of those gods, mini-gods, demanded lordship of every area of their life not one of them demanded the lordship of every area it was a mix and match religion so you had this and you had that and well we'll follow this and then we'll follow that and and, and so there was a real mixture going on so you, you can understand can't you how the people of Israel they had in their minds this thought that actually we can serve the living God and other gods. That, that was the mindset. That was their way of thinking in that culture. They could accept the existence of the Lord, but not as sovereign, not as the God overall. And so no God would claim lordship over every area of life. That's, and that, actually, that's one of the dangers I think we face as Christians. Because it's so subtle, you know, we would never forsake God. You know, we wouldn't do that. But instead, we ask God to coexist with other mini-gods or idols in our hearts. And I think I was thinking this through in terms of, you know, I suppose as Chris, in the West, we wouldn't dream of bowing down to a carved idol. We wouldn't dream of, you know, bowing down to a stone obelisk or something like that. You know, that's to, to, to think of bowing down to a wooden statue that promises fertility. We'd never do that. That's, that's ridiculous. We, you know, we would say, goodness me, you know, I'm never going to break the second commandment. You shall make no other gods. You have no other gods before me. You will not make an idol or a carved image. But idolatry doesn't just apply 
to the sort of an ancient sculpture or a primitive carving or anything like that, something you can touch and feel, it's much more subtle than that, isn't it? You know, every human being is prone to worship something that is not God. And idolatry has always been around, it always will be. The only thing is, it changes its nature. And some of the most powerful idols are in the mind. And I was thinking, what, what, what are these idols? What, what are the idols of today? And, and perhaps the biggest idol is self. The biggest idol is self. The God of self. So today you have self-fulfillment. You have self-rule. You know, self-indulgence. Self-expression. All of those things. Worship of self is at its most basic idolatry. Because it's putting self in place of God. God should rule, but self does. And so we, we have this, it's, it's like a philosophy today, I'll do what I want. I'll believe what I believe. You know, No one's going to tell me what to do. I'll do what pleases me. Self-expression, self-rule, that's an idol. When, it's re, when it replaces the worship of God. Uh, today, I, I think, I would say feelings have become another idol. In other words, just do what feels right. If you feel if you feel it's right, you do it. That's fine. That's the God. That's a, almost like a it's 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 like a philosophy. I'm, I'm that's that's what I live by. If it feels good, feels right, do it. Another one of the idols of today is tolerance. You've got to be tolerant, haven't you? It's one of the new commandments for today's age. Thou shalt not say, thou shalt not. You know. You mustn't say that. You know, it might, it might not be right for me, but if it's right for you, then that's fine. I'm, I, I mustn't say anything against that. That's, that's being tolerant today. So anything goes so long as it's nothing negative to do with gay rights or anything like that. It's, it, it's, it's a fact, isn't it? The thing that irritates, I think, that irritates people about Christianity... It, it, it's not so much what, what Christianity affirms as what it denies. You know, so people might be willing to accept that Jesus was a historical person and a good person. They might even say, well, he's the son. If, he's, yeah, if you think he's the son of God, that's fine. You, you can believe that. But to say that he's the only way to God, that's being intolerant. That's being dogmatic. That's far too narrow and restricting. We cannot say that in people's minds. That's being inflexible. And then I think another idol of today is choice. We have the right to choose what we want to do. And of course abortion is a massive issue, isn't it? The choice, the right to choose. I can't remember now, what did somebody say? Something like, there have been millions of children sacrificed on the altar of choice. Something like that. It was, it was something like that. And when you think of it, it's true, isn't it? But that, that now, today, it's, it, a woman has the right over her own body, and, and that's their choice. Just in a different tack altogether, I was reading about the, the, the history of the Girl Guides, and uh, some while back now, I think it, well, it was in well, 1994, that's over 20 years ago, they changed their guide promise from to do my duty to God to to do my duty to my God. 
right? So they changed that. That was 20 years ago. So anybody, the, the, the girl guide who promises to be a, a true member, my duty is, so I, it's not a promise to do my duty to God, but to do my duty to my God. Now that my changes everything, doesn't it? Could be any God. And that's, that, was the, that was the idea. But now since 2013, all reference to God has been taken out. So guide members pledge to be true to myself and develop my beliefs, whatever they are. Um, I'm not knocking girl guides. It's just an illustration, I think, of, of the world we live in. I think looks are an, an idol today, aren't they? Body image. The, the, the things our teenagers especially bombarded with, you know, the, whether it's, uh, um, I'm going to say skinny. Is that the right word? Skinny models? Uh, yeah, size zero, is it? Or size minus or whatever. And, and, or, or muscular looks or whatever it is, or fashion, and you've got to have the right stuff to wear and all of that. Body image is one of the great idols of our society. You know, I suppose, age, how do I stop the aging process? It's a mega business, isn't it? How to stop the wrinkles and things like that. Now, I'll come back to this. It's good to be health conscious. It's good to be, it's good to have a pride in your clothes, you know, in the right sense. But when it becomes all, all engrossing, you know, we've got, always got to be reminded that God looks at the inner person. Inner beauty matters to God more than the outer. We have to remember that. God looks for the beauty of a a, a, was it a, 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 a gentle spirit. That, that, it's a lovely verse. I think it's in, in 1 Peter. So s- idolatry is, is where something or someone takes the place of God in our, as a central position in our thoughts, in our lives. I've, I've mentioned some of the big things, sort of almost like um, in our society. But it, an idol can be anything, can't it? It can be love of money. Money can be an idol. Material things, possessions, holidays, sport, careers, sex, Facebook, (laughs) multimedia, all social media, all of those things, football, shopping, (laughs) all of these things. And it's interesting, isn't it? These things are not necessarily bad. In fact, they're actually, most of them are God's gifts. But I, what, what happens is our nature takes them and, and they supplant God. It, it means that God is pushed out by these things so easily. It's what we spend our time, our money and energy on that absorbs our thinking, that we think about, that we dream about. An idol is anything that we live for. And that takes God's place so as I say they might not necessarily be bad things but when they become the central feature of our lives they become an idol we're breaking God's commandment and uh, I I think because the idols are often good things that are turned bad it's sometimes a very fine line between something doing something that's good with a good motive, but actually for it to become an idol. It's a very fine line. So, so you know, it's good, isn't it, to work hard? 
it's good to want to care for your family and and, and put your work in and your, the effort into your work and, and and to aim to be ambitious it's not a bad thing but that can so easily take over as becoming my driving force and it grips my heart or even between loving our family that that's so precious it's right to love our family but between loving our family and making an idol of our family, where actually that family becomes what's so important to me, not God. And, and God's not as important as my family. And God doesn't really have the say about what I do with my family or how I live with my family. Then we've, we've, we've gone across that thin line and it's become an idol. We'll always be able to rationalise our sins. I came across this. This is an old Puritan writer, Thomas Brooks. And he said this, just a simple sentence. Satan paints sin with virtue's colours. It's it's a bit quaint, but... Satan paints sin with virtue's colours. In other words, these things are really attractive and nice and, and, and it almost seems good. You know, it almost seems, this is lovely, this. And right, and we're doing it, and yeah. And yet, it can turn into idolatry. So, just to sort of bring this to a close, how, how do we combat these things? How can we guard ourselves against idolatry in our lives? First of all, simply we need to be aware of the dangers and recognize the dangers of idolatry. Recognize how prone we are to embrace or slip into em- idolatry we need to watch our motives I think our motives are so key in this it's always good to be asking you know why am I doing this what am I doing what, 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 what what's what's my aim in this what's driving me because ult- ultimately our drive must be to please God and love him and live for him Another thing as well to combat idolatry in our lives is this. We need to learn to hold things lightly. You know, I I need to hold these material things, things that are part of my life. I'm just a steward. My family, I'm just a steward. They're entrusted to me. They don't belong to me. They mustn't become my gods. I must hold things lightly. My house, my car, my husband, my wife children, grandchildren, my health, friendships, possessions, music, films, whatever, best clothes, savings, pension, all of these things, they cannot be my driving force. They can't be that which absorbs my energies if I'm going to really please God and honour him. And then as well, Make sure that our love for God is the strongest it can be. That our love for God is above everything else. Remember, God is a loving God. He is a lovely master to serve. Seems strange to say that, isn't it? You know, you're serving a master. Idols are cruel masters. They do not love us. And they'll spoil us. Just to finish with, I just turn or two things. One is a reference, and that's Romans one. Paul gives this amazing, very um, clear insight into the power of idolatry. Romans one verse twenty-two to twenty-five says, 
professing to be wise, they, and he's talking about humanity, he's talking about men and women all down through the years, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They changed God. They made images to worship. Verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonour their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It says, verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their heart. To give up there means that God allowed the things that they served instead of God to become the ruling power in their lives. He gave them up to that power. So the judgment for idolatry was greater idolatry. God gave them up. He let them have what they wanted. And those things that they wanted gripped them and took them and led them into more idolatry. So God says to the person who worships money, if you want to live for money instead of me, that money will rule your life. It'll control your heart. It'll control your emotions. If I want to live for popularity or for material things or for my family more than God instead of me, those things will rule me and control me. Because when we give to some part of the created world the worship that belongs to God, the creator, that idol acquires power over us. So we might think we serve it, they serve us, but in fact we're serving them. But God isn't like that. He's not a cruel master. He's a loving master. He's a gracious master to serve. Let me finish with this example. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, there's a conversation between Mr. Beaver and Susan. And Mr. Beaver is talking about Aslan, the great lion. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan? said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. Is he quite safe? said Susan. I'll feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And uh, Aslan, of course, is the Lord Jesus in that C.S. Lewis's uh, um, writings. He isn't safe. He's not comfortable. You know, he's not undemanding. He, he, he wants the best. He wants lordship. He wants every part of our lives. But he is good. He's loving. He's a good saviour. A good God to serve. There's a, an old hymn. We're not going to sing the old hymn because I've chosen I wanted to sing another song. But it says this. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee.
or for a closer walk with God. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Well, may that be our desire and prayer and will to do that. We're going to sing another song and uh, just uh, turn to the words. Yeah, all I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres, that's the idols and wars to own, all I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now, compared to this, knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. That's a great antidote, isn't it? Love Jesus with all of our heart and tear those idols from our heart with God's help. Let's uh, stand to sing. Your Holy Spirit puts within us the law of God. We thank you, Lord, that no longer do we have to obey that. We want to obey that because of the Holy Spirit living within us. And Lord, thank you that you graciously, lovingly take us where we are and you help us to grow in our obedience to you, our loving obedience. So Lord, I pray that uh, your light, the light of your word, might have shown areas of our lives that we can bring to you and dedicate afresh to you. Oh Lord, may have brought rid of conviction to our soul and our conscience. And uh, we pray that you'd help us, Lord, to be soft-hearted enough to confess our sin where we, where we have sinned. And give us, Lord, those holy desires, because, Lord, you are a good master, a loving master. And, Lord, it's a good thing to serve you with a single eye. So, Lord, help us to do that, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all that you've done in our lives. And thank you that you things that you are doing right now. Thank you for the things that you will continue to do, Lord, because you are constantly transforming us, making us more like Christ. So Lord, help us this way. This week we pray, as we read your word, we think and pray and go about our daily lives. Lord, help us, Lord, always we pray to put you first, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength, we pray. Part us with your blessing. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for fellowship. Thank you for meeting together like this. In Jesus' name we pray.